Hey guys, welcome to the Drone Horizon podcast. I'm Alex and today I'm joined by Jethro Kiernan. Jethro, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay, uh, my name's Jethro Kiernan. I'm a North Wales-based photographer. Um, and drones, relatively new thing to me. Well, I'd say two years I've been using drones. Um, primarily um, as a photographic tool, but um, it has led me to start exploring the video capabilities, not just of drones, but of cameras in general. Um, I was actually talking to a colleague this morning about starting um, some video guides to North Wales. So that's an idea that's on in the pipeline at the moment, um, which will probably start relatively soon, as soon as we can get out and about with lockdowns. So yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, the drone thing has opened up quite a few possibilities. I think. Cool. Well, thanks for being with us today. Um, obviously, as always, we've asked you to send over your three shots. Um, we'll start with probably what is my favourite out of the three, um, which is the one of a person on a mountain, very snowy mountain. So do you want to talk us through why you've sent this one over? OK, well, that's actually a relatively recent shot. That was, um, ooh, when was that? January the 10th. So, yeah, taking advantage of the snow. Um, Kribkoch is relatively close to me, so I can cycle up there. Uh, wasn't so fun at four o'clock in the morning cycling up into the mountains. Um, but yeah, I've been meaning to capture this. Um, there is some video footage that um, I'm putting together from this shoot, but capturing that particular ridge, it's very spectacular. It's a very popular mountain. Um, and to get up there with the drone was kind of a plan. I've been up there with the DSLR quite a lot. I've experimented with the drone a couple of times just to sort of kind of get some test shots. And um, I knew that the two people that are featured in the picture, or there's one person in that particular picture, um, were going to be up there around about the same time. So basically I had an agreement from them that they were happy for me to film and shoot pictures of them. Uh, we weren't actually meeting up, but I knew they were going to be on the ridge very early. They had the same plans as me to try and get some pictures and some footage. So we kind of mutually agreed that we, we would volunteer ourselves as subjects in the picture. Um, so got up there um, just before the sun came up. A little bit. I usually try and get there well before the blue hour if I'm doing this kind of footage. Um, and I was very interested, actually, to see how the Mavic 2 performed in that low light situation. I kind of, it, I'd had the Mavic Air before. This is the Mavic 2 Pro that I'm shooting on um, with a bigger sensor and in theory should have the better dynamic range for this kind of blue hour type photography as well as video. Um, and as you can see from the shot there, it's crystal clear. You know, the, the sun hadn't quite come over the horizon at that point, so relatively low light and pin sharp pictures not breaking down so very happy with the way that drone is is performing you know at one point i had considered the inspire one getting that second hand just for that photography element um, i previously had the mavic air and i found for video it was more than good enough but for stills, it would have been at the limit of what it could handle, especially that kind of shot. I don't think um, I would have had a shot that I could publish necessarily. It would have looked okay on Instagram probably, 
I could have put it on Facebook, but as something that would be, for instance, a double page spread in a magazine, it probably wouldn't have been quite good enough. Whereas that I would be quite happy to send out for an editorial picture. I'll blow it up to A3 and it can do all of that. So I could sell prints and I can sell it to for editorial use um, on a double page spread. And I think that's the major difference between kind of moving up that next step in the in the cameras really. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this shot in particular, I really like it because obviously you've got the the sort of pinkiness of the sun sort of just hitting the the snow. But as you mentioned, like the the dynamic range on this shot is really really good because although the right side of the mountain is in almost complete shadow, you haven't lost any of the definition in the snow at all. Like it is really really clear, um, and it's just you've got like a really nice contrast, and obviously you can just see the sort of the horizon sort of drifting away in the background. Oh, this is obviously I can see by the the file name that this is a panorama. So was this like a two or three shot panorama that you've then stitched together, or was it more than that? This one's actually a two shot panorama. Um, I wanted to capture the the right hand peak as well, and I needed the figure big enough to be noticeable in the picture. I have some other. Um, shots from that shoot with the, the figures much smaller and I, I can get the other things in, but I kind of wanted the, the figure to be noticeable from the start um, where he's stood, he's sort of highlighted by the sunshine, but he's got kind of shadow in the background. So that worked really well. So quite often, I mean, it's very good being able to shoot panoramas with the drones. They're almost the perfect tool for it. You know, everything's steady. The, the, the shots tend to fall together quite well. Um, there are some other five-shot panoramas I shot um, with the sunrise coming over from that. So the sun's coming over the horizon. Um, it worked quite well, um, but I think this was the strongest shot out of the, uh, out of the shoot, you know, certainly as far as an editorial. The others, if you string too many shots together, it can, it can have a certain novelty effect but it's almost overwhelming. Um, so two or three is usually the limits of what I'll shoot with the drone on a panorama. Um, get a good overlap, but yeah, two or three shots is usually the sort of the publishable limit really without it looking a little bit odd. Yeah, definitely. And although obviously it is a, is a wide shot, you've sort of, everything that is in it sort of serves a purpose. I think sometimes with panoramas, it, it can be quite easy to just use it because you've got it and just you know use it because it's there but sort of limiting yourself to the two shots and still getting everything in frame that you wanted to get in there um, works really well with this shot and obviously you've got the guy sort of in the bottom left hand corner and then in the sort of top right hand corner you've got the the horizon so it's not like it's nothing is there that shouldn't be there like everything sort of got it got its place within the shot and I think that's what I really like about it and obviously you've managed to sort of capture the two peaks and then you've got that leading line from the bottom left hand corner going all the way up to the peak so it sort of guides your eye all the way up it's a really lovely shot yeah I mean I, I think a lot of my shots if you didn't know the area you might think that they weren't shot with a drone and I quite often try and go for that if you're if the shot looks like it was shot from a drone then maybe that's the primary reason for having the picture, just a novel angle. And if that angle doesn't work, there's not much point shooting it. There has, you know, it has to look good. 
You know, I, I think I primarily use it as a mobile tripod. And I've seen quite a lot of drone shots of this particular area, and people have a tendency to go up high, to go up to the, the limit of what you're allowed to height-wise. And it, it quite often doesn't throw the background into a good frame. You know, you, you have a dot and a ridge. You know, I know that some drone shots, and I do them myself, looking straight down, the autumn leaves, roads going through it. We've all tried those shots, but primarily it's, it's almost a mobile tripod. And you've got to frame, you've got to forget that it's a drone and you've just got to frame it. I mean, I, I purposely bought the smart controller to get the bigger screen and the sharper picture, plus the whole thing of batteries dying on phones in that kind of weather. Um, was a practical consideration as well, but just framing it and taking that time to kind of, as you say, the leading line is to, you know, get, getting the leading lines in the corner going up. <coughs> it's very easy to shoot hundreds of frames. And I think if you view it as a mobile tripod and kind of stop it, frame the picture, adjust it a little bit, just like you would a normal DSLR on a tripod and then shoot that way maybe slightly less shots, but always, one of the things I do do is I always shoot, um, I always do my uh, exposures manually, and that makes you pause and adjust things, and that's really good. So you could actually, while you're adjusting your exposures and your apertures, you're also looking at the picture and you actually think, actually, no, that's not, you know, if I move a little bit, having that little pause rather than actually shooting lots of frames is much better i think i mean you you've got to be fairly quick i mean that that light you're seeing in that's kind of pinkish purple light is only there for about five minutes um, and i also had the dslr with me and i got a couple of shots with that so you, you're operating two things so you kind of better to get one or two good shots and rather than snap away and try and get 10 shots that maybe don't quite work yeah, definitely. I mean, you sort of mentioned briefly there about using it as a mobile tripod. And that I watched a video the other day, which sort of touched on that, that you should view a, a drone as a tool rather than as something just to get sort of drone angles. And I think using the drone as something instead of weight, like, how can I word this? So using the drone where you can't use a DSLR. So if you need, if you think that your composition will work with a camera that is just above your head, but you can't get a DSLR up there, then a drone is perfect for that situation. And using it for as a tool to get the composition you want, rather than just sticking it up at 400 feet and sticking the camera all the way down, I think helps to get that composition. And obviously, like you said, using it as a mobile tripod to be able to move around. And obviously in this kind of environment where you've probably got sort of peaks and troughs that you can't always move in and out of very quickly, having a drone and being able to move it to get the composition you want in that short frame of time is probably ideal. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something I'll touch upon with the climbing pictures because, um, I mean, I can remember the day that I decided, yes, I'm gonna try the drone photography it was more related to the climbing and being able to access somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I submit um, pictures to various places and, um, I was, uh, I'd put some up on a site a couple of days ago, uh, UKC, and there were some other drone shots of, of the, you know, of that general area. 
And definitely it, it goes back to the early days of the GoPro when people used to, you know, mountain bikers used to strap it onto their helmets. And the first couple of times you saw it, you thought, you know, that's interesting. I've never seen that before. But, you know, eight years later, everyone is sick of seeing 10 minutes of mountain biking GoPro footage where someone's just put it on the helmet. You know, it's boring. You know, it makes you feel a bit seasick watching it. The newer, the newer cameras with the stabilization, all the rest of it. Um, you know, I've done some filming with a mixture of GoPro drones and, and um, the camera of mountain biking. And I think, you know, it's, it's only experimental editing, but I don't think I put any GoPro footage from the helmet cam that I was using at the time. It just, you know, it's, it's days been and gone. Unless, you know, unless you're doing Red Bull runs or something like that, it's not really. Um, and it's the same with drone footage. I think we're going to get, you know, we probably have reached boring drone footage peak now. And I think there's going to be, you're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to think a bit more. You're going to have to plan a bit more. And you're going to have to be a bit more creative now to get good photographs. Um, drones have been used in climbing now, uh, there's quite a few early adopters, um, but more for the film footage. I think as a, as a photographic tool, it's still relatively new and I'm still kind of, I'm still managing to capture a bit of a niche market, certainly where I am, um, a drone photography as opposed to filming. I think drones first obviously started out when we first sort of started to see drones being used, it was on nature programs on TV and in places where helicopters weren't able to go. And I think that's probably, obviously they've developed now and, and they're more accessible to sort of the average consumer. Um, so using them more of as a, more as a photography tool, I guess, as you say, is sort of, it's still a reasonably new thing. I mean, you touched on GoPro there as well. I think GoPro still have their place within the market, but I think that place they sort of excel most in places where you can't put another camera and i think mountain bikes now you know you can get compact cameras that you can stick on a gimbal and still get really good footage so i think gopro still have their their uses in situations where you know you need that waterproof or you need that rugged ability like fpv stuff um i mean sticking a gopro on an fpv drone you wouldn't be able to put anything else on there unless obviously you go a lot bigger but i think they have their place but not I don't think they're completely useless, but I think overusing them for things where you don't need to use them is maybe where they're becoming a little bit more saturated. Yeah, I think I think the GoPro, I'm not saying it's relegated to B-roll, but the majority of, you know, certainly if I were shooting footage, most of the GoPro stuff would be B-roll. Unless you're in a properly, you know, if I was in a snowstorm and I didn't want to get the DSLR out or the video camera, or if I was in a water situation where I didn't necessarily want to take camera housing or something like that with an expensive camera in it, then yes, the GoPro has its place. Um, but certainly as someone who's primarily focused on photography, obviously it hits its limits photographically pretty, pretty quickly. I have had some good shots from GoPro, you know, photographic shots, but you know, there's more misses than there are hits when it comes to photography. Um, like I say, this place is where it's getting extreme and you want something small. So either the weather's extreme or you just don't want to be fumbling with a 
a big camera at the time. And it's all about selecting the right tool for the job as well. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't take a GoPro to go and film a nature documentary where, you know, you have the the budget for like a bigger cinema camera. It's all about selecting what's right for the time. I mean, you would you would never really use a drone to to film something like you wouldn't hover a drone in one place and use it when you could use like a, a gimbal and a, and a cinema camera. So it's just about selecting the right tool for the job, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and you know this project that I've been discussing with the, the climbing stuff, you know, the tool kit will comprise of some GoPros. It will have, you know, DSLRs for filming on gimbals or, or, or mirrorless cameras, and it will have the drone. You know, and sometimes you can't use the drone. I mean, if you look at a lot of my footage, it's usually very early or very late in the day. You know. Um, certainly in the uh, the subjects that I shoot, climbing and outdoor stuff, there's already developing a little bit of an anti-drone feeling in certain places because people are flying them insensitively. You know, they're going up on busy bank holidays on the summit of Snowden, you know, and flying drones around, you know, when there's hundreds of people around, it's just not the time and the place. So even sometimes when a drone might be the best tool for the job, you really have to sort out your timing and your planning. Um, I know that on the project that we're looking at, if there were other people climbing around at the time, there's a high chance that they might not appreciate someone flying a drone. You know, and the laws have changed as well. So we, you know, we've got to be more careful about who we're flying around. And you know, even though I'm, I'm getting my qualifications it's still you know there's still limitations on what you can and can't do around other people's whether that's just out of sheer politeness or the law either way and you're going to get a bad rep if you're flying them irresponsibly or annoyingly yeah and it's just been about as you say it's just about being sensitive to the situation and realizing that sometimes you know the conditions might be perfect but it's about taking that step and thinking to yourself, right, maybe I need to not fly it now because although it's right for me, you know, there are other people here and that's what ends up giving drones bad rep is people that fly them irresponsibly because they then are seen as being a nuisance. And obviously everyone that flies a drone enjoys flying their drone, which is why we do it. And obviously we get amazing shots like the ones that you've sent over, but it's all about being sensitive to how other people perceive that as well because other people just hear the noise and see the drone and you know they don't consider the amazing capabilities of it yeah and i think you kind of as part of the planning process if you're thinking about a shot um normally that will lead you to consider what else is going on around there um i think if you're using it as a glorified selfie stick and just randomly flying it around then really what you're doing is you're doing the you're doing the equivalents of those people that hold their phones up at concerts. No one in the history of concerts has ever watched back concert footage. You know, it's just not something you do. You either go there and you watch it or you watch it on MTV or YouTube. You don't watch someone's mobile phone footage of a concert. It just is of no interest to anybody. And you've got to really think, if you're not interested in the footage you're shooting, don't shoot it. You know, it's, it's 
you can annoy people, you're filling up your hard drive full of rubbish. It's that planning process, you know, what you want out of your drone footage, whether it be just for your own enjoyment, that's, you know, shoot it for your own enjoyment, but think about it beforehand. You know, what are you shooting? What you, what's the story you're wanting to tell to you and your friends? And, you know, look beyond just the novelty factor of having something that can fly and get high footage um, and start planning, start thinking about it just for your own satisfaction. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that sort of brings us nicely onto your second shot. Obviously, we've touched on sort of your your climbing background. Do you want to talk us through this shot and why you've sent this one over? Okay, well, this one is kind of one of these shots that just jumped out at the time. Um, it's um, the area where we're photographing is is sort of notoriously loose and crumbly. The access is quite difficult. Um, so I had been shooting shots off an abseil rope with um, DSLR. Um, and this was kind of the last route of the day. So the people I'm photographing and filming are kind of subjects that we're, we're all bought in. It's a relatively quite quiet area. So there was no one else around. And this being the last route of the day, I was actually, the intention was to abseil in and get some pictures. Um, but I was struggling to set up a safe abseil point. So that's where it kind of the drone thing kicks in. You go, right, okay, rather than trying to set up something that's potentially unsafe, either for me or the, or the subject, that's where the drone really comes in. So in some ways, it's, you know, the one of the things that got me thinking about drones was, was safety as much as anything, which is why... I guess I always view it as something of a, or I've started to view it as a mobile tripod because really it was about, I just want to get to that point and I want to take a picture. And sometimes it's not safe to do it with all, you know, with ropes or abseiling, like I say, either for yourself or the subject, you don't want to be kicking rocks down on people. You don't want to be dropping stuff on them. That would be, yeah, that would be disastrous. Um, you're probably not going to get very many people coming out to take pictures with you. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the things that got me on that. So that shot, it's kind of the end of the day, so the light was really good. Um, it wasn't bright and sunny light. It was quite soft light, and just the, the, the texture and shade of the rock. Um, I could see that the composition looked good through the camera. It's slightly cropped, but I could see the composition was good, but it was only once I got back into Lightroom and the editing is, is I could see the textures better and the colors better, how it almost mirrors the yellow of his jumper and there's some yellow in the rock. Um, so yeah, that worked really well. You know, I was going for some shots above and again, the Mavic 2 was really good for that because the proximity warnings allow you to fly relatively close to the cleft to, to look down, although that shot doesn't look down. There are others where I'm looking down at the subject. So you can almost get to that point where it can replicate you being on an abseil rope looking down. Um, and being a quite a wide point of view, you get that sense of exposure as well, um, which is always quite good. Yes, it would be nice to have interchangeable lenses and be able to zoom in or zoom out. But, you know, the wide, I tend to shoot wide angle anyway when I'm taking climbing pictures. So that works quite well for me. Yeah, and I suppose wide angle as well, it helps to give you 
uh, a scale of the size of everything. And I think that's some of the, the best climbing pictures I've ever seen. Um, the, the guy's name's escaping me at the minute, but he's a photographer for North Face. Um, and some of the shots that he... Jim. That's the one, sorry, Jimmy Chin. Um, and some of his shots that he captures of people like halfway up the side of Yosemite, like they look fantastic because you've got an idea of the scale of everything. And, you know, if you'd have taken this shot, but without the subject in it, I think you would have realised that it's, you know, a mountain, but you'd have no idea how big the mountain is. And I think that's what makes it such a lovely shot that you've got that sort of scale in it, which is obviously something that's that's great in, in all shots and are consistent sort of throughout your three as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, you know, there's this, in climbing photography, there's this kind of, or, or outdoor photography, there's kind of figure in a landscape and the climbing stuff is just an extension of that. It's a figure in the light. So you, it, it, the figure has context. You know, you could zoom in, you could get, you know, the facial expressions, the look of strain. And yes, there's a place for that. And I, I take those kind of photographs. But it, it's not the sort of thing that's going to inspire someone to go there or want to do that. You know, it could be shot in a gym. You, you want that context of where the person is and, um, you know, what type of rock they're climbing or what type of mountain they're climbing, where that mountain might be or the sense of scale. All these things are all part of the figure in the landscape. And it, you know, it's, it takes a lot. It, there's a lot of having to be there. There's a lot of hit and misses with that kind of thing. And, you know, you have to be up there at the right time. You have to be up there multiple times because, you know, sometimes the light just isn't working for you. Um, during lockdown, we've been going up and down the local mountain. It's, it's, I can be, if I go for a fast walk, I can be up on the summit ridge in an hour and a half. So, you know, I've been up, going up there, dragging the kids up to be subjects. And we're getting a hit rate of about one in four trips up there where the lights, the light of the clouds and everything comes into and it's something worth shooting. So, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of misses in a good shot as well. Yeah, I mean... You sort of briefly touched on that you've been going up to your local mountain. I remember when I first messaged you back in December, um, you weren't available that week because you were camping up the top of a mountain. And obviously to be able to do that and have that kind of environment around you makes it perfect for the sort of photography that you're into. Yeah, definitely. And and even if you don't have a specific brief to follow for an editorial or something, Usually, if you you know if you know if you're looking at the weather apps and things are coming into conjunction as far as clouds and sunsets and and no wind, it's always worth going out and shooting speculatively and building up um, that kind of portfolio. So, yeah, it's always you know there's always opportunities, and when they open up travel or when the travel restrictions come off again, I'll be going to the Lake District in Scotland. Um, you know, eventually, hopefully to Europe as well. Maybe a deferred trip to the Dolomites to to go do that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, COVID has obviously caused a lot of people a lot of a lot of trouble. But one thing that it has been beneficial to, and it's sort of been a reoccurring theme throughout this course of the podcast, that a lot of people are spending more time exploring their local surroundings rather than traveling all the time so people that maybe would always go abroad for their holidays are starting to go to places like the Lake District and Cornwall and appreciate what they've got 
in their own country rather than traveling all the time and obviously for yourself where you would maybe normally go to you know Isle of Skye or North Scotland Lake District and abroad like being able to or not being able to but almost being forced to explore your local area as a way to sort of escape lockdown has probably been quite a nice thing for you. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I was thinking about this with the local mountain. I was up there last night. Um, we had a little bit of a cloud inversion. I, I have shot some footage, which I haven't gone through properly yet. But I kind of almost thinking, well, if I go up there enough, I could probably put together a short film about just the local mountain. You know, and it's not somewhere you turned your nose at, but it wouldn't be the first place that I would think of going if I thought of, you know, either photography, filming, or just a walk in the hills, it was kind of, it's too near. You know, you always want to go explore something new. But I think we've been up there about 10 times since lockdown has started. And I'm actually appreciating it a little bit more now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just sort of going into your third picture then, do you want to talk us through this shot? So, yeah, this is, this was on the Mavic 2 again. Uh, this was... I think a week previous to the other shot. Um, so I'd shot some stuff with the um, DSLR before then off, off uh, an abseil. Uh, so what this guy's doing, he's doing a new route. And this is actually, this is actually the first ascent. So this is him genuinely climbing it for the first time. So he'd been practicing the route. Um, and I got some shots when he was doing that off the DSLR. And because it's a new route, because it's actually potentially quite a bold route, so the consequences of falling off are quite serious. Um, when he came to do the actual ascents, I decided for his little peace of mind and stay out of his way, I would experiment with the drone. And because he'd been practicing it during the day, the light was almost ideal. It was almost perfect side light. You can see he's just catching the light the shadows are starting to come onto the route. So it's kind of brilliant. I mean, that takes me back to when I used to shoot slide film, well, back in the day, where you get that quite contrasty look of slide film, very poppy colors. Um, and it kind of captured that. And that, that's something that resonates in me when I see those kind of pictures that take me back to shooting slide film. It kind of, I go, oh, I like that if it works well with the sort of contrasty shadows, someone working with shadow and light. Um, and that just, and again, the dynamic range, because dynamic range isn't always about pulling stuff out of the shadows. It's also having deep, dark shadows as well that don't break down. And that works really well. You kind of need the dynamic range just to have that, that contrasty look. Um, bigger the sense of the better that's it's all we can do for you know for especially shooting stills yeah and that's what makes the mavic pro 2 sort of perfect for that kind of thing obviously it's got that one inch sensor on it and you know, it's a hasselblad camera so it's got that those good genes behind the camera and it makes it perfect for capturing that high dynamic range yeah and that that's definitely one of the things that sold it to me the other thing that you know i'd kind of read about in the reviews but is quite important in this kind of situation and in the mountains is actually if you're using it well it's relatively low noise you can fly it a relatively short distance away and if you're 
not maneuvering wildly, it's pretty quiet. It can go out of sound range, but fairly quickly. And if you leave it again, kind of go back to that tripod type mode. If you're just hovering there and there's no wind for it to fight against, it can it goes into the background. It's not distracting for subjects. And that's quite important for me. You know, I've always got agreement from my subjects that I'm going to film them and I'll ask them to give me a shout if it's becoming too distracting, if I'm flying too close. But it's quite important for me that you know, I'm not intruding on the subject. You know, a lot of the times, especially climbing photography, it's about letting the person do their own thing. You know, I'm not posing them. I'm not asking them to stop. I'm not asking them to, to throw moves. I have to leave them to it. I have to not distract them, you know, especially when it's a serious climb like that. So that, that's also an important thing that the, you know, the Mavic 2's really got going for it. Um, you know, you have to change the blades occasionally. Obviously, if they've got a little few burrs on the edges, they become noisier. But yeah, just having it drift into the background, and that's that's another thing that people can learn to do as, as, as sort of an act of consideration is just the way they fly the drone. If they know there's other people within hearing range, just go easy on those joysticks. It's not a race. It's not a race most of the time to get from A to B. So just do all your maneuvering in this kind of considerate manner, and it makes the batteries last a bit longer as well. Yeah, definitely. Whereabouts was this shot taken? Because it sort of, I can't work out exactly where this was taken. This shot. It was taken in the Clean Peninsula, so it's on the coast in Wales. Um, so there's a there's a coastal path that goes along the top, and then you drop down. And you do these routes from sort of, well, you have to scramble up the grass there. But um, awesome place. Again, it was pretty quiet. And the other bonus was there were some uh, dolphins out in the bay as well. So I was actually, I was actually uh, able to fly out and get some pictures of the dolphins swimming out at sea as well, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And again, that's something that you'd never be able to capture with a normal camera, especially in this instance where you sort of see the dolphins out there and you think, oh, just go and shoot those out, you know, having the drone and being able to whiz it out to sea, then obviously. Yeah, that just, you know, to be able to cover, you know, five or 600 metres of ground over the sea, take some pictures, fly back, get some more climbing pictures, drop back that day as well as a climbing guide going out for this particular area. So I was able to go back, stitch some panoramas of the showing the cliff so that when it comes to the guidebook, the editor can take the picture. He can draw the lines of the various routes, show people how to get them. But that kind of thing is probably the most common use of a drone in climbing at the moment is, is to actually get these kind of informative step back looks at mountains and crags that people can then use uh, for guidebooks. Definitely. I mean, we've sort of briefly touched on the kit that you use. Obviously you've mentioned sort of your previous drones. Do you want to run through what you would normally take with you when you're going on sort of an expedition like this? Okay. So if I'm going out in the hills and I want to cover both bases, um, I have a Nikon Z6, which I use. Um, so that's the mirrorless camera. Um, I will probably take about three lenses, depending on what time of day I'm going. So I have a wide angle zoom, which is a 14 to 30 F4. Um, 
Again, these new Z lenses are absolutely awesome. Um, I have a 20 mil 1.8, which I will use if I'm shooting subjects at low light in the blue hour or sort of in dawn or sunset type footage footage. So, you know, if I'm, I'm taking pictures of someone walking in the mountains, it's nice to get that blue hour stuff. So you need quite a fast lens. So I'll use the 20 mil for that. And then I have a, sometimes we'll take the 70 to 200 uh, zoom as well to zoom in on either a subject or a landscape. So I'll usually pack that in um, a low pro square, which fits in my rucksack. And then I'll take the Mavic 2 drone and I'll take the smart controller. I usually take three batteries. Um, an average shoot, I'll probably use two of them. If the, if the light's good, normally I'll get through a battery and a half. You know, if, I, if I'm out specifically just to shoot with a drone, I can quite easily use the three I have considered and getting a fourth battery. More to do with some of the sea cliff climbing because sometimes where you launch from and where the climber is, you know, it might be a couple of hundred meters. You're still in line of sight, but the journey to where the climber is and the journey back can eat into the battery as well. Um, one of the last shoots I had on the sea cliffs before the shutdown came in, just as I was getting to the end of the, the battery, some really great storm light came in. So the cliff was well lit but there were black menacing clouds in the background i was keeping the i was keeping the drone there longer than was sensible over the sea i managed to just get it back into uh, a safe space before the battery really started draining down and that's not something you should really be doing it's a very expensive thing to emergency land into the sea and um, so yeah i think uh more batteries than you think always worth um also, cold batteries, I mean, obviously that first picture, I think the temperature at that point was probably about minus six or seven to keeping batteries warm. They're only going to last two-thirds of the time that they would on a normal day. Same with the controller. Um, don't make the classic mistake of having all your batteries charged up and then your controller battery or your phone battery runs out because it doesn't matter how many drone batteries you've got if you can't control it you're still scuppered so then um, yeah having a good charging routine i mean there's so much stuff to charge up now you know smart watches phones drones cameras toothbrush yeah exactly even the toothbrush yeah i think with obviously everything becoming smarter and, and more electric you know i can easily fill up two or three extension needs worth of stuff that needs charging up before I even go out anywhere you know you've got power banks phones headphones like everything needs charging up which you know is great but then if you're in situations where say like you're camping up in the mountains that then makes it more difficult because you're reliant on having that electricity source but I suppose having more batteries than you need is is always worthwhile and I think if you have more batteries than you need and you're in that situation where you know, for me, I was out in France last year and I shot a sunset at Le Mont Saint-Michel and I burned through both batteries and looking back, I could have had another one because then I could have just got those extra little shots, you know, made the most of the situation. But, you know, I burned through both and then by the end of it, I was happy with the shots, but 
maybe sort of looking back, I'd, I'd wish I'd had that extra one just in case. Yeah, I mean, sort of the next step beyond that is kind of the expedition type stuff where you're actually going out for multi-day trips. Um, whether it be something like a canoeing trip or a, a long distance walk in Scotland or multi-day trips in the Alps, if you strike it lucky, you can have a great sunset, you can have a great sunrise, and you can be doing interesting things during the day, and then possibly another great sunset, or another one after that. So, yeah, what you burn through in a normal sort of sunset, golden hour, blue hour, might be two or three batteries. Multiply that, you know, and that's something I'm kind of looking into now is the more expedition stuff, the solar chargers, the battery, you know, the battery banks, how many batteries you need, how you manage power over, you know, in the backcountry. And you know, once restrictions lift longer term, you know, potentially there's trips away, you know, and there's trips away from power or not so easy power. Or when you do get to power, it's limited. You know, I was, I was um, looking at trekking in Nepal, which I've done previously, um, but a lot of the tea houses now, they charge you for, you know, if you want to use a plug, you've got to pay for it, which is not in itself a problem. But, you know, if you've got so many devices, you might not have access to all the plugs you want. You know, how do you, how do, you do all this sort of stuff? So again, solar chargers. You know, even, you know, Jimmy Chin, if you look at some of the expeditions he's been on, the, the amount of logistics required for all the electronics is amazing. You know, they have a whole media tent where they're charging the laptops, the, you know, all the electronics associated with running a film with, you know, red cameras, gimbals, the full works, everything requires power. Then you imagine doing that in the Arctic where the coal is trying to kill the power as quickly as you can charge it up. And logistically, yeah, that's quite a thing. Um, I've always had kind of vague um, admiration for those that can do sort of vlogs out in the field. You know, I'm juggling trying to use a, a, you know, a drone and a DSLR at the same time then trying to add the extra complication of doing a vlog at the same time i don't know how people like that do it to be honest you know logistically especially when you're going further afield yeah hats off to them yeah definitely so do you want to just run us through how you sort of first got into photography i mean by the sounds of it you sort of started off with dslr and then sort of recently picked up a drone do you want to run us through where that sort of passion started from okay i mean the time the, the time frame goes way back to slide film and getting a, a, a camera when I was 18 for my 18th birthday. So I was shooting slide film. And I started doing that or editorially and commercially for a period. So I was shooting for climbing magazines and doing articles, uh, the odd sort of PR shop for some of the companies. And it's not... You know, it's not massively financially lucrative. And then kids came along and mortgages had to be paid. So I was doing that. So I kind of, the, the photography went on hold a little bit. And then when DSLRs became a little bit more established, um, 
I got one. I found it was a lot cheaper to do stuff. You know, I wasn't sending a slave. It was a lot easier to, to experiment. So I started picking up where I left off and a friend of mine was putting together some guidebooks at the time. So he, he was looking for photographs. So I started photographing for his guidebooks and that kind of got me back into it. So now I'm back where I'm doing editorial work. And obviously things have changed with the, the whole of digital landscape, social media, the whole approach is different from sending off a bunch of slides, you know, that you would maybe see in publication three or four months down the line to now I can shoot something on Saturday and it can be on an online digital magazine on Monday. You know, it's just a different landscape. And drones were kind of a logical step on from that. Um, it just made sense with the, you know, I had that epiphany moment where I was trying to get a shot of someone. I knew that the, where they were climbing was spectacular. I knew the access was really difficult. Um, we went there. I couldn't get the shot, basically. I just couldn't get where I needed to be to get a good shot with the limitations of using a rope and DSLR. But I knew that if I could fly a drone there, I could get absolutely spectacular pictures. So it was kind of, that was the moment that I started thinking about drone. And eventually it wasn't a, a few months later, I committed. And I, th I think I got an award-winning shot, I think two or three months after having got the drone, I, I did a photo shoot, managed to get, um, some award-winning shots pretty early on. So I think the concept of, yep, using this mobile tripod to get places really works. I think I knew what I wanted from the drone before I got it. It has led me on to, you know, thinking more about film footage. You know, I was doing some mountain biking stuff, putting some films together for that. So it's led on to more stuff and it's led on to thinking more about film footage, but still that, photography element is still the strongest part of wanting and using a drone yeah i mean you sort of briefly touched on earlier that you started out with a mavic air and then you were considering an inspire one why did you consider the inspire one um partly because of the i i've got a micro four thirds camera and olympus that i use anyway so i had some of the lenses and i and i, I was aware of the strengths and weaknesses of the sensor, the sensor would be pretty much the same. So I knew what I could get out of a micro four third sensor, um, which bearing in mind that the, the Mavic Air is kind of a compact camera size, mobile phone size sensor. Um, I knew the difference for landscape type photographs and the sort of stuff I was shooting would be quite spectacular. Um, so I had the Air at that point and it was kind of the Mavic 2 Pro was, I think at the time it was kind of just being talked about or was just being released. So I did look at the, the Inspire and I looked at the logistics of carrying it in the mountains as well, because obviously it's not an easy thing to move around, but it also, if you're doing a specific shoot, then that sometimes that discipline is a good thing. You know, you can carry your Mavic Air around 
all the time. And yes, maybe, you know, you could get that spontaneous image. That's not the same as planning a shoot and going out with someone and dealing with the logistics. Um, looking back on it, I think the mobility thing is better served by the Mavic 2 Pro. Um, my hope that at some point in the not too distant future that the they're going to come up with something that has a Mavic 2 form factor with a micro four third sensor, you know, possibly filling that gap between the Inspire range and the Mavic 2 Pro with something small enough to carry, big enough to get a decent micro four thirds picture. And I, I think that might happen. Um, We'll see. We'll see what's announced in the next year or two. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, I think each of the DJI series sort of covers their own basis in terms of the Mavic series is better for portability, sort of the Phantom, sort of the bridge point between the Inspire and the Mavic. And then obviously the Inspire is sort of the league of its own. And I think they all sort of cater to their own audience. But for people that want sort of inspire quality but the portability of the Mavic there's sort of obviously although the Mavic 2 has got that incredible sensor it's not the same as the Inspire series so I think if they were to come up with something and I think that would probably satisfy a lot of people that sort of do the similar kind of photography and videography that you do um just sort of finishing up then is there any tips obviously I know we've covered a few as we've gone through but is there any sort of closing tips you can think for anybody that is just starting out um, yeah, I mean, one of the things, certainly for filming, the um, sort of the auto modes are pretty good, but put it in cinematic mode, sort of slow mode, and practice doing some stuff yourself. Because although the sort of cinematic moves on, on the filming are, uh, or the auto moves are pretty good, you know, they, they do shoot some great footage. If you start using them all the time, you're just going to have the same footage all the time. So it's it's definitely worth the discipline of using or using the controls manually and manual exposures to get to imitate the shots and then get your own stuff because not everything works with a particular subject or a certain location. And if you want to film you need to be able to operate those joysticks yourself and get usable footage. And the other thing is, is always keep your smooth footage longer than you think you need. That's, you know, it's a classic mistake. I mean, one I made lots when I, you know, I, was, I wanted to build up some film footage. And I found that actually when it came to editing, it wasn't quite long enough. You need to top and tail it. You know, you, you'd suddenly jerk to a halt. But then when you were in editing, you would kind of think, actually, I wanted that footage to carry on for another four or five seconds. So, yes, learn to shoot smooth manually and shoot more footage than you think you need to edit something together. Um, and sometimes, and the other thing with shooting footage is just keep it still sometimes. You know, treat it as a, as a tripod in the sky, even if you're filming and not just photographing, but filming, let the subject move rather than the drone. You know, as a, you know, for instance, 
it's all, you know, if I was shooting film footage of the ridge, it's all very well having the drone swooping around the subject and, you know, looking all spectacular. But sometimes it's quite good just to let the subject walk through the frame. Just have your drone hang there, get your hands off the controls and just let the thing happen. Um, I think that's, there's not enough footage of that. You know, it's, it's like the classic mountain bike footage. People are going to get seasick of seeing swooping footage of um, drones flying at high speed. Even though they're tracking the subject spectacularly well, it still can get a little bit wearing. Yeah, and I think, obviously, in those kind of situations, you want to allow the drone to capture the natural beauty of what you're seeing. And I think sometimes if you overcomplicate a shot, especially with video, you can take away from the actual subject and you're left with, after sort of watching the video back, you're left with thinking, well, all I saw was this person doing this. I didn't actually get to see anything else around. And I think that, you know, that can sometimes sort of ruin a shot almost. Yeah, I mean, you know, they've all got to tell a story. They've all got to, every sort of shot has to have the who, where, why, what, when element to it. And you've, you've got to allow space for those questions to be answered. You know, and we don't all want it thrown at as high speed. You know, sometimes you just want to look at a beautiful scene in on the screen slowly and let that happen slowly and organically. You know, we don't want to be so far away from the subject that we don't even know there's a subject there. And we don't, don't want to be so close that we don't know what context that subject is moving or working in. So it's kind of covering all those bases. So yes, you might want to go properly close to the subject. So you can actually see who the subject is, they're wearing or what they're doing and slowly come out so you can see where they are, but incorporate all the elements and give each element enough time to register on a person, I think is the key to it. Cool. Well, thank you very much for being with us today um, and for taking time out of your schedule. Um, do you want to just remind everybody how they can find you on sort of Instagram and your website? Okay, website is www.jethrokeenan.com. Fairly easy. And uh, Instagram, jethro under slash keenan.com. Uh, Perfect. Well, thank you. As I say, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. Um, it's been really great hearing about your pictures and, and your experiences. Um, so, yeah, all the best for the future. All right. Well, thank you. Nice to talk to you. Yes. Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay. Cheers. Cheers.